I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles at this time to the book of Exodus. In a few moments, we're going to be reading Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I want to pray and then give you some background to this passage so that we can understand um, what's happening, because we are breaking into uh, this tremendous story that we find in Exodus chapter 1, beginning. Uh, And so we need some context before we actually look at the text itself. So let's pray. Our God and Father, this morning we confess once again that uh, as Christians, we're in the long line of generation after generation of those who have acknowledged the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are in a long line historically of those who would consider themselves people of the book. So we come to your word, which is described for us as holy scripture, that which is God-breathed. And that which Jesus himself taught us to read from the standpoint of what he shared with his own apostles and disciples, that all of the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, all of the Old Testament word, actually bore witness of him, that he came in fulfillment of the scriptures. And so even as we consider your word this morning, we pray that it would be teaching us, leading us to understand more and more of Christ. This is what we would ask. We pray that you bless our hearing of the word, our understanding of it, not that we might be somehow spectator scholars of the scriptures. Father, it's not just knowing your word, it's living your word. It's seeing our lives changed and transformed so that we become more like Christ. It's to recognize that as those who bear your image, that image was so defaced and broken and, as Calvin would say, vitiated by the fall. And that the work of redemption is a great work in restoring to us from one degree of glory to the other by your Holy Spirit working with the Word, restoring that image so that we become conformed more and more to the image of Christ. That's what we would pray for. Lord, help us to walk then uh, accordance with your word, uh, your spirit working in us uh, to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we uh, come to consider this passage in Exodus chapter 3 this morning, we need to think about Abraham. We need to think about the significance of Abraham for the Jews and then the significance of Abraham for Christians in the New Testament. Uh, the Jewish people ascribe their ancestry to Abraham. They refer to him as Father Abraham. They recognize that God's interaction, God's intervention in Abraham's life was so incredibly significant. Uh, There was a time in which Abraham lived in a pagan culture, probably a pagan himself, and God chose Abraham to leave uh, the place of his birth, the place of his ancestry and to go hundreds and hundreds of miles to the west to this this land of Canaan where God established his covenant with Abraham and promised to Abraham that this land is going to be your land and I'm going to make of you a great nation. You're going to have many, many, many descendants 
even as numerous as the stars of the sky. And we know in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when Abraham hears all of this, and Abraham looks at the sky, and he believes God, it says, and he believed God, and God credited to him as righteousness. Uh, The story of Abraham is the story of God founding, originating, establishing his people. God's covenant made with them. God's covenant in such a way that God said, I will be your God and the God of your children after you. So it was a generational promise, a promise of of being not just your God, but the God of all your descendants too. So the Jews find Abraham to be incredibly significant. This is important during the time of Jesus. Because during the time of Jesus... Uh, the Jews were essentially taking their claim with Abraham by ancestry to be their claim to salvation. We belong to Abraham. Therefore, you know, we're the chosen ones. Therefore, God has favored us. Therefore, there's no question, but of all peoples on the earth, we're the ones who are saved. All the rest are Gentiles, uh, no better than dogs common Jewish sentiment. Significance of Abraham. No question about it to the Jewish people. Then we look at the New Testament, what the New Testament has to say. And the question is, is is Abraham significant for the New Testament Christian? And the answer is, yes, very much so. Uh, That's the profound teaching of the Apostle Paul. Uh, That's the way the New Testament looks at it. In fact, salvation is described for us in the New Testament as those who are truly children, spiritually, of Abraham. That all the promises of God to Abraham uh, understood, as the New Testament understands them, uh, the land, Canaan, representative of heaven, uh, the uh, even circumcision, rec- uh, uh, an emblem of a spiritual transformation. That's Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Uh, uh, Book of Galatians. Uh, where Paul says, by faith you inherit all the promises that God made to Abraham. By faith you are Abraham's children. Heirs with the Old Testament saints, all the New Testament saints together. The name of Abraham, incredibly significant. Now, Now, why is that important? Because as you read through the Old Testament, when you read about Abraham... You're not reading about someone you are disconnected to. The history of Abraham, spiritually considered, is your ancestry, your history as well. Uh, You know, American citizens, you know, at least in my day, when we were in school, you know, we would look at the founding of the nation and so forth, and we'd say, this was our nation, those are our forefathers, they did these kinds of things. Christians need to recognize that what God does as Exodus begins to rescue the Jews out of their bondage in Egypt is your history. It's our history. It is our history. That was the New Testament's perspective that all believers in Christ could count themselves children of Abraham and see the entire story to be important for them, significant for them, their true history. Now, that's very important, very important today. 
We have people who are so tribal, people who are so nationalistic, people who want to claim their genealogies back to a particular group of people and so forth. That's very much the horizontal perspective on life. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's very much the horizontal perspective of life. Your true genealogy is spiritual. Your true ancestry is through Christ to Abraham. That's what New Testament Christians ought to understand and believe today. Now, that that brings us to what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so with that as a background, let me read then Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. You know that this begins a third section in Moses' life. 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. The first 40 years, he's a prince of Egypt. The second 40 years, he's a shepherd of sheep in, out in a, in a Midian. And now he begins the third, under God's call, to become the one who over the next 40 years is going to be the deliverer of God's people. He's going to be that deliverer in answer to a promise that God made to Abraham. So, Exodus, chapter 3. Beginning at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father, his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now I'm going to say something here because I won't say it in the message. Angel of the Lord. Hebrew analysis of this, not my analysis. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm trusting the guys who are smart. Hebrew analysis, angel of the Lord means in Hebrew, the angel who is the Lord. So there's an identification there. That makes sense because the angel of the Lord appears to him in the burning bush, but when the speaking begins, it says the Lord. All right? So, verse 2, middle of it. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he, meaning God, said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of the taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, 
if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And I am to be remembered throughout all. Thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, this passage, as I've already mentioned, is about the calling and commissioning of Moses to be the one who's going to deliver the people out of Egypt. Now, out of the rich, very, very rich teachings in this passage, <clears throat> where we could spend a number of messages, this morning I want to focus rather narrowly on how God reveals himself to Moses and then connect that to the New Testament. I, I want us to see the answer to two questions. Who is God? What is God? And then the third question, how is Jesus connected to the God who reveals himself in the burning bush to Moses? Those three particular questions. So, in looking at this, we need to remember that there's a great redemptive theme going on here. God is going to reveal himself in the burning bush to Moses in order to bring about the redemption of Israel and redemption from its bondage. They were slaves in Egypt. Now, God does this to fulfill his covenant with Abraham. That covenant with Abraham the very covenant that the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 identifies as the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in the New Testament then, we're going to find that Jesus identifies himself as the God who appears to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus connects himself to the burning bush the burning bush is the commissioning time of Moses. Moses is going to deliver the Israelites out of a promise because of a promise that God made to Abraham. So we have these themes all connected. The covenant with Abraham. The promises made. The revelation of God to Moses, of who he is and what he is. And Jesus connected himself to all of that. We're going to do this in the next five minutes. Not so. I'm watching the clock. Now, the first question is this. Who is God? Well, let's begin with verse 6. Look at what God says about himself to Moses in verse 6. He says, I am the God of your father. That would have been Amram. But more than this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, when God is telling Moses this, he's saying to Moses that he is the one true God. He's the God who began the world. Uh, he's the God whose, uh, whose history and story has so far been recorded in the book of Genesis. So, who is this God? Well, first and foremost, he is the God who acts in human history. Besides being the creator of the world, 
and everything in it. He's the author of history, and especially he's the author of redemption. He's the, he's the God who gave the promise at the time of the fall in Genesis 3.15. He's the God who has said, I will send into this world the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. The one that assisted you in breaking the world, that one I will destroy, is what is being promised there. But furthermore, he's the God of judgment. He's the God who brings judgment upon the human race. He does so at the time of Noah and the flood. He's the God who brings judgment again at the time of the Tower of Babel when he confuses the people and confuses the language and begins to separate people so they will, in fact, spread throughout all the earth. And then he's also the God who has called Abraham, called Abraham from one part of the world, Mesopotamia, all the way to the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, the promised land. So he's a God who acts in history. He's a God who has a very specific plan as he acts in history. And he's a God who actually guides and guards his plan in history. And we saw this in the story of Joseph, the climax of the story of Joseph, when Joseph says to his brothers concerning what they had done to him, uh, selling him into slavery into Egypt, you intended this for evil, but God intended this for good to provide the deliverance of many peoples. God guards and God guides his work in human history. But secondly, right here, we see that God identifies himself with the covenant. God reminds Moses, that he is the God who made this covenant with Abraham, and he renewed it with Isaac, and he renewed it with Jacob. So he's the covenant-making, and he's the covenant-keeping God. Uh, when God makes his promises to his people, he actually swears by an oath that he's going to fulfill all of those promises. He's going to take it upon himself to make sure that the conditions of the covenant are, in fact, fully kept. So because of that covenant that God has made with Abraham and then renewed with Isaac and renewed with Jacob. And because the heart of that covenant is, I will be a God to you and to your children after you, God is declaring himself to Moses in this way. I am not just Abraham's God. I am the God of all of the Jews. I have come because I am the God of Israel, the whole vast nation who are now enslaved in Egypt. So, in calling Moses, God is being faithful to his promise. Back when he made his promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, he attached to that promise these particular words. He said, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they're going to be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, that's why God then says, chapter 3 of Exodus, verses 7 and 8, that's why God says these words, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land 
to a land that is flowing, that is a good and broad land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. So what does God do with Moses? He establishes his credentials. When God announces himself to Moses, when God describes who he is, when God says who he is to Moses, he is establishing his credentials. I am the God who created all things, and I am the God of your forefathers, and I am the God of the covenant. But further, besides establishing his credentials that way, God is going to tell Moses his name. Now, this comes about because Moses has a concern, which in so many ways is a very legitimate concern. I'm going to go to the Israelites, and I'm going to announce all this, and they're going to say, really? Well, what's the name of this God that is calling you to do this? Because if Moses doesn't know the name of the God, he really is going to be acting in some kind of ignorance in the eyes of the people. You can think about what Paul said at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, where he sees an altar that says, to the unknown God. <laughs> well, is an unknown God going to deliver us? So, so Moses has a legitimate concern here because a legitimate question might be asked. But furthermore, here's something else that's going on. The Israelites have spent some 400 years in Egypt at this point, and they have been inundated with a pagan culture for which there are um, somewhere between 10 and 15 very specific deities. I looked them up. There is um, Hapi, or Happy. I don't know how you pronounce it. It's H-A-P-I. The god of the Nile River. Uh, Heka, uh, the toad goddess. <laughs> Great credentials there, toad goddess. Uh, a goddess of the land. Then there's Geb, a god of the earth or vegetation. Uh, Kephi, a god of insects. Apis, a god of the sacred bull. Thoth, the god of medicine and wisdom. Nut, the sky goddess. Might be called Newt, maybe not Nut. Uh, Anubis, uh, the god of the fields and cemeteries, Ra, the sun god, as well as Osiris and Iris and Seth. I mean, you've got all these gods, and all these Egyptian gods had very specific names, but you notice that as you think about these names and hear what they're the god or goddess of, they are identified as gods and goddesses with particular parts of creation, with particular things that go on in nature. And that is very, very significant because it's typical of the entire pagan world that the gods and goddesses of paganism were always connected to, were always associated with the powers and forces of this world. That is to say, in other words, they were part of this world, not transcendent over this world. They could be identified with nature in some particular way, and it was their glory to be identified with nature in some particular way. So, verse 14 God is going to tell Moses his name. And he says, I am who I am. Then the second time in verse 14, he shortens it to I am. God tells Moses, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
Now, in a moment, we're going to explain what this means, the name means. But I want you to see that this phrase, this name of God, does not appear among the Egyptian gods. It doesn't. Further, the name of God, I am that I am, does not identify or connect with any part of this creation at all. Doesn't connect to the sun, doesn't connect to the to the sky, doesn't connect to the earth, doesn't connect to the insects, doesn't connect to the river Nile, doesn't connect to darkness, doesn't connect to toads. It doesn't connect to any of these things that we find that the Egyptian gods were necessarily connected to. Now that's very significant. This is to say then that God is identifying himself as not a part of this creation. He is not a force within this creation. God is not a pagan deity of any kind at all. So who is God? Well, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the author of creation. He connects himself to this world as creator to creation. That's how he's connected. And he connects himself to this world as the one who is its complete author. He is its king he is its sovereign ruler in every way. But then within this world, he connects himself to the people of this world, not as their favorite deity, but in the first place as their judge. You look at all the judgments that have occurred so far in the history of the Bible up to the time of Exodus. But he also has established connection with people and through, in and through the covenant. A covenant of redemption so that the seed of the woman who would also be the seed of Abraham would be the one in whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. Now that's who God is. The God who's sovereign. The God is not a pagan deity. The God is the creator of all things. And the second question though is what is God? Who is God? What is God? Now, the name by which God reveals himself to Moses speaks to this question, and it gives us the answer. We might say that the question, who is God, is also the same as, what is God? Because in the final analysis, who is God and what is God become exactly the same answer. They're the same questions that have the same answer, and the answer is in the name that God has revealed to Moses. Look at verse 14. God says, I am who I am. Now, here God is saying who he is and what he is at the same time. Who he is and what he is at the same time. I am who I am. Now the point of the name is that God is who he is and he's not anything else. 
God isn't anything else except God. Uh, all that God is, is God. Why is this so important? Because in expressing himself this way, God is making it sure that if the Israelites understand, he can't be identified as anything within this creation. That's what paganism is. It will take all sorts of things in this creation, call them a God, think they're a God, and worship them. But God is who he is, and he is not anything else. And all that God is, is God. And God is all that God is. But nothing else is God. Calvin points out that the actual grammar of this I am who I am is a future tense. Which is to say, I will be who I will be. But then Calvin says, but it has the force of the present. It has the force of what you might call a durative present, a presence that endures, a present tense that is and continues to is and continues to is, or it is and it continues to be and it continues to be and it continues to be. That is to say, it is and it does not change. It is all that it is. It never will be anything else. It is this and it will always be this. I am who I am. Am is the force and meaning of what God says to Moses. Never changing. He has always been God. He is always God now, and he will always be God. God eternal. God unchangeable. Now, the best minds of the church for the past 2,000 years have studied this passage, and they've studied the Hebrew. And he told us these things. Now listen carefully to this. When God says his name, it's in the first person. God says, I am who I am. But his instructions to Moses in verse 15 is not for Moses to go out there and say, I am who I am sending you. No. It's he is who he is. That when Moses is going to refer to God's name, it necessarily changes from the first person to the third person because it's only God alone who can say, I am who I am. No one else can say that. I mean, you can say it, but no one else can say it and it'd be true. You are made up of all sorts of things and some of those things you would not identify as essentially what you are. I have a beard. One time I didn't have a beard. Same guy. Not quite as good looking, but same guy. <laughs> now the point is, we change. There are all sorts of things about us that actually change. What we are can undergo modifications. We can't say, I am who I am, ever in the sense in which God says, I am who I am. Because who we are 
today may be somewhat differently in terms of who we are tomorrow. But we can talk about this. We can say, as God instructs Moses to say in verse 15, He is. Tell the Israelites that He is has sent you to them. Now, what's interesting, though, if you look at verse 15 in your translation, you won't see He is. You will see the word Lord in capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. There's a technical term for this. It reflects four Hebrew letters, which we would transliterate into English as Y-H-W-H. The technical term is called the tetragrammaton. Latin, that simply means four letters. <laughs> tetragrammaton. Uh, it would be easy for scholars just to say, oh, this is the four-letter name, but they like to have Latin phrases to make them sound a little smarter. So it's tetragrammaton. Now, the point is, is that every place in which the Hebrew third person, he is, would show up in the Old Testament as a name of God, the tetragrammaton shows up and the translators of the Bible, first the translators in the Greek and then translators ever since then, have substituted for the tetragrammaton, these four Hebrew letters, the word Lord. The word Lord. Now, some modern translations actually have Yahweh. They take the Hebrew letters that transliterate to Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And they add a couple of vowels, and they get Yahweh. But everywhere you look in your Bible and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the third-person form of a name of God, directly related, directly grounded here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What does it mean? So not only have the great minds of the church told us what the Hebrew is and what's going on, but they have together said, this is what it means. God is describing himself in his name. He is telling us that he is eternal. He is absolute. He depends on nothing. He needs nothing. He's absolutely self-sufficient. He is all-sufficient. And he is self-existent. A simple way of looking at this, God leans on nothing at all to support himself. Everything else must lean upon the existence of God. Everything, all of creation, dependent upon the Creator who does not need anything at all to sustain His existence because He is completely sufficient unto Himself. Now, this understanding of God becomes then a very great theme in the Old Testament and a very great theme in the New Testament. Just one passage out of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Let me just read this to you. 
I like the NIV's translation here. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Greatness beyond all greatness. The God who is so transcendently great above his creation. And then we looked at these verses already. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, who is to come. The eternality of God is described who was, who is, who is to come. It's never not true that God is the God who was, who is, who is to come. He is the eternal God. He is the God of every possible verb tense and beyond. And then verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and praise. Why? For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. The creator of all things, all things depending upon God's existence. God, the eternal God. God who has always been. God who never had a beginning. God who will never have an ending. But everything else has had a beginning and a source of all things, finally and ultimately, God himself as the creator. Now, if you understand this, if you understand what the name of God means, if you understand the biblical presentation of the nature of God, you will never ask this question. But it is a question thrown out there by atheists, some with PhDs in philosophy, which shows that you can have a Ph.D. in philosophy and be ignorant of the things you try to argue against. But here's the question. Well, who made God? Where did God come from? Wait. Have you never read that God is eternal? Do you not understand plain English? The eternal God has no beginning. The eternal God has no ending. There is no, where did God come from? Because God has always been. It's one thing for a five-year-old to ask a question because you're explaining all sorts of things. It is surprising and a very sad state of affairs today when it's a Richard Dawkins or a Sam Harris or any of these common atheists that are arguing today to essentially say, fine, where did God come from? The name of God tells us there is no where did God come from because God has always been. God has always been. If you understand the biblical understanding presentation of God, you will understand. God has always been. There is no beginning of God. But there is for everything else. Final question. What's the biblical connection here between Jesus and the God who reveals himself in the burning bush? How does God reveal himself in the burning bush? He says to Moses, I am. 
Now, the clearest place where Jesus identifies himself is John chapter 8, verse 58. Let me give you some background here. In that chapter, second half of that chapter, Jesus is in a very intense dispute with the Jewish leadership. Uh, he has begun to confront them about their sin. They react very strongly. They claim to be the offspring of Abraham. They claim Abraham as their father. They claim they were never enslaved to anyone. Did you forget Egypt? <laughs> they claim that Jesus is a Samaritan, which is a slur racially upon him. They claim that Jesus has a demon, which is a slur spiritually upon him. They reject the idea that there's any sense in which Jesus can set them free. In his response to all of these charges, Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil. Uh, your will is to do your father's will. Uh, you can't hear and understand what I'm saying to you because you are not of God. And then Jesus begins to make this claim in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews say to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did all the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and all the prophets died, who do you make yourself out to be? Verse 54, Jesus says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The Greek, ego ami, is exactly the same when the Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 was translated. Look it up in the Septuagint sometime. It says, And God said to Moses, Tell them, Ego me has sent you. Now, we know that here Jesus is claiming deity because of the response of the Jews. They began to pick up stones to stone him. Now, in a normal way of speaking, what you would say was, before Abraham was, I was. Jesus chooses his grammar to reflect who he is. Before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus claims to be the one who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Now, Do you really want to know who Jesus is and to know him deeply? Then it's Christ of all of Scripture. It's, it's the Christ who claims to be the one who sent Moses to deliver the Israelites out of the bondage of Egypt. Egypt. 
that great redemptive theme. Christ is the mediator of the redemption that the Jews experienced out of Egypt. Christ is the redeemer of the Old Testament. Christ is the redeemer that became incarnate of the Virgin Mary in the inauguration of the New Covenant. Christ is the redeemer of the New Testament. All that you would say God is, Jesus is all of that. Which means he is the all-sufficient Savior in every way. Trust him. Lean upon him. Rely upon him. Honor him. Thank him. Worship him. Glorify him. The scriptures present the Lord Jesus in all of his glory so that we might live for him and honor him in every way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your Holy Spirit who opens up the word to us. Thank you for Christ, the theme of all of Scripture. Thank you for granting to us a salvation in him. Now enable us to go from this place and to serve him faithfully. In Christ's name, amen.